This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything going on at Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's secondmissionfoundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles and Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. If you haven't been there in a while, check out HavocJournal.com. Read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal's always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Give it a visit at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. I want to introduce the show today by talking a little bit about somebody that's not on the show, Liam Neeson. (laughs) So when I think about the Taken movies, and for that matter, the James Bond movies, you know, what's alluring about them? Okay, this figure, and it's funny because both Bond, Liam Neeson, those type of folks, they're they're older, right? These are not, uh, except for Matt Damon in the Bourne Identity, which is probably why I didn't like the Bourne movies, full disclosure. Um, but they're, they're t- they tend to be older men who radiate and give the lasting impression of a depth of experience. Very world-weary, men-of-the-world type figures placed in wildly different exotic locations that most people never get to go to, never get to see, doing incredible things, right? So it's the best parts of a travelogue and a little bit of experiential you know, voyeurism. And that's what's attractive about those movies. That's what makes those movies so appealing, especially, I think, to men. Dale Comstock has lived that kind of life, and there are not many that can say that they have. But if you were just to list bullet point after bullet point after bullet point of what Dale has done in life, um, and if you, you know, have the read-on to fully see all the stuff he's done, not just the stuff he can talk about. I'm sure it is even more impressive. So just superficially, that made me very interested and and eager to sit down and talk with Dale. I first heard about Dale, probably like most of you guys, about 10 years ago when he did the show Stars Are in Stripes on NBC, where if you don't remember the show, they would pair a celebrity with a soft veteran And they'd go through this reality TV show competition where they're basically simulating military objectives and and doing different tasks and stuff like that. And Dale was uh, paired with Terry Crews on the show. This was the show that also featured, you know, Chris Kyle, 
um, who was paired with Dean Kane, I remember. And uh, anyway, Dale was paired with Terry Crews, and Dale was, as you know, the caption I think followed him around on the show would always say it was like Dale Comstock Delta Force, like he was the Delta guy on the show. And that makes sense. I mean, that's a bullet point that's going to jump out at most people as the most prominent thing in Dale's life. But as we talk about on the show, I mean, that is one of many, many, many bullet points. And and a man, I'm a big believer that a man is a lot more than the bullet points on his resume. Um, and that is certainly true of Dale, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, that was how I first, that's how I knew the name Dale Comstock. Um, and then, uh, getting back on social media the last couple of years, I saw Dale's Instagram and I was really blown away. I was like, holy shit, this dude's fucking like on it. Like, you know, he's showing these videos, like his workout videos were first blew me away because he was showing himself working on the heavy bag and you know, his movement looks great. Like he moves great. His flexibility, his mobility, his power is still there. Um, yeah, just moves like a much, much younger man. And I was like, wow, that's fucking impressive. And then I'd read the caption and he'd talk about, I've got this injury, that injury, damn near snapped my back in half, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, fuck, good on you, man. That's really something. Um, and then you'd see other things come up on his feed where he's got, you know, different pics or it didn't happen type, you know, proof of life pictures where it's like, you know, this was taken in some exotic locale with a bunch of dudes. Um, and he would give a little caption about where he was or some general description of where he was, what he was doing, and, and hinting at all this kind of stuff. And some of those pictures looked really recent. And I was like, fuck, I don't think he slowed down after Stars Are in Stripes, which is weird because if you do a TV show on NBC, I think it's safe to say your, your military or paramilitary or military industrial complex career it's kind of over, right? Um, and from what I gleaned talking with Dale today, it seems he thought that too. It's just not what life had in store for him. And instead, there was a lot more, you know, adventures that he had to go on and still has to go on. And that's not a bad thing. It, it's something, you know, it's what he enjoys and it's, what he, it's who he is. Um, but it does make for one hell of a life and one really interesting romp through um, – through his resume, right? Um, now, our interview suffers from the same thing that his book suffers from, which is, you know, there's going to be OPSEC stuff. You know, there's a lot of details that we're not going to mention or talk about or I'm not going to ask about. But that's neither here nor there. Like, you can, you've seen the Bond movies. You've seen the Taken movies. Like, you can you can guess at some of the stuff. And Dale's, you know, certainly gives out um, good little, t- you know, tantalizing tidbits about different things he's done and different operations he's run, different cases he was called to assist on and all that. And so that's all there. And, you know, it was obviously sexy content to, to listen to. But to me, the biggest takeaway, um, which is also true for his book, um, which I read, I forgot to mention that, that after Instagram, his Instagram page got me to buy his book, um, which is called American Badass. And um, again, very wave top level view of his life um, by necessity. You know, he can't be Hemingway. He can't go in and just, you know, really make you like feel like you were there um, because that's, you know, while it's the first rule of every writer, obviously most writers don't have to deal with OPSEC at that level. And um, so, you know, the book, 
that that part of the book suffers, but that, but it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, what do you really take away from the book? You're taking away a bit better understanding of the operating system that Dale has found to make him successful in a life that most people do not find that degree of success in or even that degree of fulfillment in because let's not define success purely by money. But as Dale and I talk about on the show, you know, it's also about happiness. And in fact, not also about it. It is about happiness. And if the money, you know, the money's there to, you know, accentuate the happiness or reveal more happiness, but it's, it's not the end all be all. And to find that degree of happiness and fulfillment and contentment is a real triumph. So to understand more about the operating system of a man who has found that is, I think, always valuable. And in Dale's case, his performance coaching, his um, mindset, and how he has trained his mind to behave to sharpen his performance I thought was incredibly articulate, incredibly insightful, incredibly valuable, certainly for people that currently need it, but also for those that want to understand the concept well enough to be able to pass it along to the next generation and share, you know, how to improve your performance. Uh, I think that's just really impressive. And, uh, and that alone for me was worth the, 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 the price of admission to talk with Dale. I thought that was just beyond fascinating. So I hope you guys really enjoyed that part. But, you know, with a guy like Dale, you're never, you're never running short on subjects. Um, I will say Dale, you know, was, uh, I didn't do him any favors. <laughs> he told me he was traveling the day before and I was like, great. How about the next day at 11 AM Eastern and not doing the math in my head as to what that was going to mean for him. And he, you know, was a real mensch and, and took time out of the middle of the night in Manila to talk with me. Um, and I can't wait to have him back on. I, I really look forward to talking to him again. It was one of the most enjoyable interviews I've had, um, which is, let me clarify. I always feel bad when I say, when I give superlatives like that, I feel like I'm slighting a whole lot of other guests on the show. And I don't mean to do that. We've been blessed with great guests on the show, but this was a lot of fun. I just really had a blast talking with them and uh, look forward to more. Okay. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. And this is Dale Comstock's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Dale. All right, man. Thanks for having me. It's uh, midnight here in Manila. I just uh, flew in yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I flew in yesterday from Bali. Um, so I actually live in Bali. That's where my home is, my office. Um, but I came into Manila. I'm meeting with some friends. Came here to see one of my other uh, children. And I'm heading to Florida, hopefully, by Tuesday. Next Tuesday, I'll be heading down there for a couple of weeks, see one of my other children. And then I'll be back in Bali on or around the 26th, 27th of December, something like that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Is So I know you said when we were trying to set this up and you were like, hey, I'm uh, I'm traveling to Manila. And I was like, I was looking at my schedule and I was like, man, I might be a dick. I'm like going to say, okay, yeah. How about we do this the very next day? Then I was like, he might not, he might still be in Manila. He might be traveling. I might be fucking up his entire time schedule and all that stuff. But I was like, 
well, he'll tell me, he'll tell me if this is really not going to work. So are you basically shutting your sleep down? Are you going to get like four hours tonight because we're doing this show late? No, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm on my own clock, you know, I do my thing. I'm self-employed. So, um, I actually have to get up tomorrow. You're right. About eight o'clock. I've got to do a coaching call at eight and another coaching call at noon, but uh, those are the only two I have tomorrow. And, um, and then the rest of the day is mine. So yeah, that's what is I it, do, man. Is that the, is that the majority of your bandwidth now is doing coaching and individualized coaching? Um, actually, no. So I have a, you know, security company down in Bali. We provide mm-hmm. uh, security and uh, canine, explosive canines, narcotic canines, patrol attack dogs for some of the clients down there in the hotels. Um, we service Marriott and some other places. And then, uh, so that's really our, uh, our bread and butter in Bali, the security aspect of it. And I also do a lot of my personal stuff is I do a lot of performance coaching, um, call it my, you know, whatever, my side hustle. Yeah, I do a yeah, lot yeah. of that. I do security in Florida. Um, I'm actually in Philippines right now negotiating uh, some security-related contracts as well, So, which is looking pretty good. So, you know, I'm a jack-of-all-trades. It's whether security, writing books, uh, doing coaching. I do outsourcing also with another partner of mine. I have many business partners. Um, outsourcing for like, you know, different governments that need equipment, submarines or guns or parachutes or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah, water, yeah, yeah, yeah. fire, you know. So. Um, there's no real, I guess, polite way to ask this. So I'm just going to kind of ask it the, the most directly I can. Are you able to leverage all your military experience in a way that's satisfactory for you? Because I know, I know the contracting game. I know it's a bitch. I know it's a hustle and you have all these lines in the water. Is, is that enough? Does it, it, do you feel satisfied with that? Or is it one of those things where you're like, God damn, man, this should be easier for what I've done in my life. This should be more of a straight A to B, you know, Um. line. For me, it's actually been easy, right? I've I've uh, I've leveraged my military skills, and I've actually been very successful. For example, um, in two thousand and four, I sold one of my security companies at G four S Wackenhut. Okay, um, I, me and my it's partner built the company from the ground up. Yeah, um, made a ton of money, and we sold it while it was still hot. And then I turned around, I started another security company on my own. Um, did a lot of consulting, both companies that did a lot of new security consulting, petrochemical plants, um, high-risk facilities. And then in 2011, I sold a separate second company to another company. Um, actually ran my company under their company as a vertical for a couple of years. Mm. Um, then turned around, moved to Hong Kong, uh, ran a, not really ran it, but uh, I was a, the detail leader for a security detail for a multi-billionaire investment banker. Um, that ended up leading me to Jakarta. Where again, uh, I just started networking, and before you know it, people kind of knew a little bit about who I was, my background, and next thing I know, I became partners with another billionaire, um, got involved in business, and I segued from there, moved to Bali, and started my own company down in Bali uh, about four and a half years ago, almost five years ago. Um, and so, you know, I've been, I've, so to answer your question, um, I've been able to leverage my military skills because. Um, it's not enough to have military skills. The other part you have to have is a understanding of business, 
Um, and, and actually, so let me clarify that. So I always tell everybody when it comes to business, it's not what you know, it's who do you know, and do they respect you and trust you, right? Yeah. That's business. Yeah. Okay. So um, it don't matter what kind of skill sets you have. If your potential client doesn't like you, or doesn't trust you, you're not getting the job. Um, unless you want to work for somebody else, um, you know, whatever, as a contractor, subcontractor, like, you know, be a Blackwater guy. Okay, that's one thing. But if you want to run your own business, be in charge of your own, you know, destiny, your own day-to-day activities, uh, the master of your own ship, then you've got to learn to talk to people, network with people, um, build trust, win hearts and minds, and then everything else comes with that after that, right? So once you have that part down, look, I've always had a, um, a my, my philosophy has always been this. I never say no. If you ask me, hey, you know, regarding anything, like let's just say something in security. Hey, do you know how to do this? Even if I've never done it before, I say I can do it. I can get it done, right? Maybe I don't know how to do it. Maybe I don't have the skill sets, but I'll find somebody who does, right. but I'll get it done. And that's how I've been successful, right? I have a can-do attitude. Um, and it's it's work, you know, I've, I've that's been really the story of my success. And, and when I say I can do it, um, even if I have to bring in a subcontractor or other people to help me, I'll make sure it's done right. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I'm one of the few that actually have been able to go out there. And, you know, the, when I started my first company, Global Security Consultants I Incorporated, um, Triple Canopy wouldn't even, you know, a thought on anybody's mind yet, you know, and I'll actually tell you a story how Triple Canopy kind of got, got its start as lunch. So I actually happen to know the, the guy that founded the company. Right. Okay. Well, that was Lee Van Arsdale, wasn't it? No, no, actually, oh, no, no, no. Um, it was going to be Matt, but uh, oh, okay. so what happened was I already started Global Security Consultants. I was very well entrenched in the nuclear security uh, industry. In fact, I had no competitors. The only one competitor I had put them out of, basically put them out of, <laughs> out of work. Um, and, and one day I was at, uh, in Fayetteville, I was at uh, a place called the Sports Center and I met with a guy named Matt and I'll just use his name, that's it, nothing more. But uh, Matt was in B Squadron, I was in A Squadron, Delta Force. And he's like, hey man, what are you doing? He was still in uniform, in fact. And I told him and I gave him my business card. And then about six months later, this website pops up, Triple Canopy. I go, who are these guys? And I read the, Part, especially under the nuclear security services, which is what I specialize in. And I'll be damned. They're read just like my damn webpage. I'm like, hey, you got to be kidding me. Plagiarize my webpage for the most part. Um, there were concepts on there that that I had developed. And, and it's a long story how they got that information. But basically, the Army had contractors that were contracted to the NRC. Mm-hmm. NRC would bring these contractors in to penetrate nuclear power plants. Well, these contractors would come in, and guess what? They're penetrating my nuclear power plants that I'm representing. I built the defenses for it, and they're trying to penetrate. So they learned my strategies and what I was developing, and it turned out, it turned around, and walked over to my competitor, and go, "Hey, we got, you know, hire us <laughs> because these guys all actually got fired for pay voucher scams, fraud, right? Now the military got kicked out, so they needed a job. So he went to my competitor, worked for him, and told him what I was doing. So. Um, they never really successfully penetrated the nuclear industry. Um, they never did, right? Because doing nuclear security, for example, um, it's a lot harder than people think because one, yeah. you have to understand, uh, you know, 
all the regulatory requirements, the NRC, the government, you know, the laws. You know, for example, a nuclear power plant security measures have to meet certain criteria outlined in, you know, various uh, uh, in regulations and laws and things like that. And so you have to match everything up along with what's called a design-based threat. The design-based threat is established by the NRC. It says you have to be able to defend against this kind of threat with this kind of capabilities. And then that's got to meet the regulatory requirements. So you got to pair it all up. And uh, and so, you know, it's it's a thinking man's game because it's very yeah. complex. Um, you got to be able to do things like read, you know, uh, four plans and, and three, 3D models. And you have to have an understanding of explosive capabilities, uh, adversary uh, capabilities, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, you know, my partner and I, we actually excelled in that area to the point where, like I said, G4S was like them. They wanted to get in on it too, but they couldn't because we were keeping, you know, holding the gates down. Yeah. And so best way to get rid of your competition, buy them. <laughs> and yeah. that's what they did. Yeah. And we sold them, you know, and uh, I kind of regret it because um, even at that time, Blackwater was just barely getting his footing and they were trying to compete with us as well. And, uh, and it wasn't working, you know. And so um, I basically, we, you know, looking back, the mistake was we sold the company. We thought, you know, we actually thought that, when it comes to security, for example, there's no real return on investment, right? It's, you know, right. you're throwing right. money at something. It's a liability. Right? It's a liability protection. It, right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And so we figured at some point, you know, nobody's going to need us anymore. Security is going to go away again, you know, back to pre 9-11 levels and stuff like that. And, and man, was that ever, we made a strategic error when we sold the company. Had I kept the company, I assure you, I guarantee you. I'd be as big as Blackwater Triple Canopy today, no problem, no doubt. I was already ahead of them, and uh, but it is what it is, you know. Lesson learned, and uh, but um, you know, I'm still doing my thing. I'm still, you know, in that space, uh, you know, doing you know, security consulting, corporate stuff. Still working. Um, I'm still look. I make my own hours. I gear up when yeah. I want. I do what I want. Yeah. I travel yeah. where I want, you know, and uh, I play by my own rules for the most part, and. You know, it's life is yeah. good. So, so I can't, I can't help but ask, but I mean, since you brought it up, it seems to me one of the big um, dichotomies, one of the big gear shifts in life is when somebody gets out of uniform and the brotherhood that they had in uniform becomes, a, if not a threat, a competitor to their way of life out of uniform. And suddenly there's no more unity of everybody being in the same unit, same uniform and all that. Instead, it's like, oh, fuck, wait, hey, now we're all jockeying for the same position. And how has that affected you? I mean, is that the kind of thing that does it keep you up at night that you're going, hey, coulda, woulda, shoulda? Do you go, ah, shit, you know, these guys should have been more brothers to me and not competitors. What does that mean for you? Because obviously, I mean, coming from, you know, Delta and all that, you know, the sense of brotherhood, the sense of camaraderie and all that, that's a big gear shift to suddenly go, motherfucker, you guys are turning around and now my competitors. Yeah, no, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. Money changes men. It changes people, man. You put money on the table, it's a game changer, man. It's funny how all of a sudden the brotherhood just kind of vanishes in front of a fucking dollar bill. It's like, whoa. And I've seen it firsthand many times. And honestly, um, I've been very selective about who works for my companies and my businesses. And honestly, I have never, well, directly hired former unit guys. There were unit guys that worked for my company and didn't know they worked for it, right? Because um, I wasn't in charge of the hiring, but I knew who they were. I knew who was getting hired. 
And I kept, I just kind of kept myself separate from that part. And here's the funnier part is when I started reading the resumes and reading all the lies, it's like, what the hell? There's some of the biggest bullshitters out there. Right? And so, um, you know, guys will do damn near anything for freaking money. And, um, and so what I decided to do was just, you know what, um, you know, just keep, keep them, let them do their own thing. All right. Um, because I feel like you're right. It all changes when you get in the, when it becomes a matter of your own personal survival in the corporate world, yeah. civilian world, you know, um, what was, was, but it's not anymore. You know, that brotherhood is kind of still kind of there, but it's not, you know, and I've yeah. seen it time and time again, you know, and, uh, sadly, you know, it is, I mean, it's a shame and it's not, they're not all like that. I've got some good friends still from the, from the unit, from S special forces, even from the 82nd, um, you know, even from, you know, the agency, um, that are still good friends of mine are still trusted and loyal guys, you know, and, um, you know, that still support me. I still support them and we'll still, you know, fight together, but there's other guys that are just fucking weasels, man. Um, you know, and, uh, <laughs> uh yeah. Well, it's, it's the nature it's, of, sadly, it's true. well, it's the nature of, of leveraging your military skill sets after you get out, right. Is that you're going to bump into everybody else that's doing that. And suddenly yeah. the, the whole topography's changed, that whole framework, everything, that trust, the brotherhood, the, the links that you had have all changed. Everybody's still the same person, but it's a whole different ball game and a whole different set of stakes. Yeah. Talk yeah. about. I've actually I, had, I've actually, I've actually had people contact me and there've been guys out there, civilian guys out there passing out business cards with my name on it, pretending to be me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, think about Holy that shit. for a minute. So there's oh. guys out there pretending to be me, handing out my business cards. Um, yeah, it's so it's it doesn't matter if they're veterans or, or civilians. It's yeah. just a doggy dog world, you know. Yes. And yes. Uh, there's there's no honor left. There's no when it comes to money, man. Like I said, people lose their minds. <laughs> Everybody loses their minds, you know. So when you got out, when you when you officially left the military, um. What was foremost on your mind? Were you thinking, and I'm not saying this in a, in a bad way at all. I think it's an incredibly practical way if this is what you thought, but was it about money? Were you like, Hey, i um, there was a reference in the book where you're like, Hey, you know, for what I know, I've been drastically underpaid in the U S army. So at this point, Hey, this is my retirement gig. I got to make money. Cause I got to, I don't have that many years left that I'm that functional. I got to make sure I'm making that money. Um, or was it about something else? Was there something else driving you? Was there something you desperately wanted to do? Um, was it a mission? Was it a, hey, I want to go to this area or want to do this specialty? What what was it that became your focus when you got out? Yeah. So first and foremost, um, I wanted to be self-employed. I wanted my mm. own business. And I'll tell you why. It's, it's something in my DNA, I think, because my father was in the Army for 20 years. He was the same way. He got out. And, you know, he became an entrepreneur, started his own insurance business, started his own coffee mm. shop, own cleaning services. He and my mom hustled. They made a good living. Um, my dad didn't work for anybody. My, my uncles and my grandfather and my cousins, everybody on both sides of my families are all, all the men are self-starters, all entrepreneurs. They don't go out and work wow. for anybody. They build their own companies, build their own businesses, right? And so I just think it's part of my DNA a little bit. And honestly, even though I was in the military and I had to follow other people and take orders, 
Um, I'm not real good at that, man, especially in the civilian world. I just feel like, you know, I tried it for a minute. So right before I got out of the Army, I'll tell you a little quick story. Um, I, had, I was building my business, and it was I was almost there, but it wasn't there yet. You know, I wasn't getting any traction. I was retiring. I'm like, man, I need a job mm-hmm. to hold me over so I can get things going. So I ended up taking a job with a company, a glass manufacturing company, a big one, Fortune 250 company out of Charlotte. Long story short, they hired me as a superintendent. And, um, you know, and basically what I was doing was herding cats all day. You know, yeah. they were all civilians. They, they weren't going to make more than $13 an hour ever. Um, and, you know, they were 12 hour shifts, rotating shifts, day, oh, night. God. Uh, they were yeah. in an industrial park. Um, they were all, you know, maybe high school grads, maybe, you know, and, uh, and the non-military types. And here I am trying to manage these guys and girls. And I got to tell you, man, it was one of the worst experiences I could imagine because suddenly I have no authority. I can tell them to do something. And they're like, why? I'm not doing it. And if they didn't do it, what am I going to do to them? Um, it, because there's so many laws now protecting, you know, yeah. these people. I had no leverage over them, right? And uh, and so it was very challenging. And I realized, okay, this is why I don't want to work for other people because here I am working for a company that I have no, even though I'm a superintendent, I got very little leverage. Um, but the upside of it was I learned something about the corporate world, corporate America, and I realized, man, my, I was scratching my head going, how is it we're one of the most advanced countries in the world with people that work like this and these kind of laws, man? How do we even get this far? Unlike the military, you know, in the military, if I was tasked to write a document, um, you know, and it needed to be, it was, you know, I need it done like right now. It was done right now. By tomorrow morning, you had it. It wasn't, I didn't get to it in two weeks, like in this corporate civilian world, right? There's so, the work ethic is so different. Um, but I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, you know, uh, you know, corporate, corporate laws, OSHA, all this other bullshit, you know, that, yeah. you know, it, it ties the hands of employers. And um, and so I was able to apply a lot of these lessons learned in my own businesses, you know. So, for example, sure. here in Indonesia, um, in Bali, you know, we run a business there. At one point, we had 65 employees um, at 45 canines. And um, one of the rules I made was I told, you know, my wife, I said, listen, I said, first of all, we treat every guy with respect and with dignity. We pay him every time, on time, all his money, right? That should never be an issue. Um, Two, if a guy makes a mistake, first time he gets a counseling session. Second time we might, you know, take some money. And third time we chop his head off, right? I said, it's not like right away we cut his head off, you know? I said, we, we, right. what we do is we apply leadership skills and traits that I learned in the military. And it's actually worked pretty well for us to some degree. Um, then there's others that, you know, again, there's always the, the – you know, the bad apples in the bunch to kind of screw it up. But, uh, um, I took a lot of my lessons learned from the military and where I learned, you know, in the U S and working under this one company for a minute, I only worked for them for three months and nine 11 happened. And the next thing I know, I get a phone call from uh, the nuclear security industry and they're like, Hey, we'd like to talk to you. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to talk to you too. And, and that's when we went off, took off to the races. But, um, um, but going back to your original question, interrogative, you know, Leveraging military skills, um, you know, look, everybody's got skills. A lot of people fake their skills, lie about their skills. Yeah. Some of them have, you know, marginal skills. Um, a lot of times, you know, civilians and, and, and clients out there and others, they really don't know the difference. Right. Um, so it always comes back to, you know what, 
I can tell you I have the greatest skills in the world and you just have to either believe me, um, you know, and then you find out as a lot of people do, it's like, damn, you're not as good as you said you were. So that's why it's more, more important to be uh, the guy that they trust and respect, be honest, be transparent, be, you know, um, you know, tell the truth, even if it, if it sucks, because maybe you don't know how to do something, but at least be honest about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you get a lot further. And that's, I think that's been really what has allowed me to be as successful as, as I have been. I've started several companies, sold a couple of companies, um, still operating a couple of companies. And, uh, am I rich? No. Um, am I well off? Okay. Uh, and, but what's more important, am I happy? Yes. You know, I'm living, I'm living yeah, a life fulfilled, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I live in Bali, I live in, in, in Florida, you know, and I uh, travel and I do what I want when I want. Um, you know, that I think that's kind of what a lot of guys want, you know, a hundred percent. I mean, if, if the purpose of money is freedom, you got the freedom, then you got enough money. Like that now life's worked out great. I mean, that's yeah, the absolutely. Fucking point. Um, I always tell people, you know, I, there's a lot of guys out there that have more, a lot more money, you know, and I, and I use it, for example, you know, we talked about me coaching. I do a lot of performance coaching. Um, and, you know, sometimes I compare myself to like Grant Cardone and Tony Robbins. I'm like, look, right. here's these two guys. They make a lot of money, more money I'll ever make, you know, because they're coaches, but they're niche coaches. I said, but those two guys lay in bed every night looking at each other going, man, I wonder what it'd be like to be Dale Comstock because they can <laughs> never buy my experience. Yeah. Ever, right. Yeah. And That's it's right. my experience is what gives me more wealth than they'll ever have. You know, they'll never have that wealth ever. And so to me, experience, um, living a life fulfilled, doing a thing that you want to do and being happy with that, there is, is your richness. There is your wealth. All the other shit you can't take with you anyway. So it's interesting. When you got out and you start going into the corporate world and it's those days before 9-11, the GWAT happens and suddenly – and I'm basing this completely off Instagram pictures and some of the book, but mostly off your Instagram, you're suddenly thrown back in a lot of tactical situations where it's like, you're not a suit anymore in a lot of respects. Like, and I understand you're running different companies on it, but it looks like you were, you know, back on the ground and doing all that stuff. At first, is that true? And second, did you enjoy that? Are you more comfortable there? Is that home to you? Or were you like, shit, I know this is badass to be down here on the ground, but I need to be making some strategic decisions back up in a conference room because we got to map out the direction of this company or what we're doing here. What was home to you? What made you What made you feel alive? What made you feel like you were on purpose? Yeah, see, I'm the kind of guy that I can do everything. I don't mind getting my hands dirty. I mean, I don't mind going out and leading the charge. Look, even my canine company, I will go out there with my guys at night, put on the uniform just like them and yeah. handle canines, yeah. right, for the client, you know, um, and do security. You know, um, you know, I think what you're referring to is, you know, I've been downrange a lot between, you know, Panama, Grenada, Africa, Mogadishu, uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Yemen. You know, I keep going downrange under, in different, you know, under a different banner, but I'm going out there as a shooter every time. Um, even the, the last time I went down range was 2015, 2016 at the age of what, 55, I think. Um, you know, and I'm running combat operations, you know, against, you know, terrorists and uh, as part of a mercenary strike team. Um, why did I do that? Because, you know, I had friends that 
owned the company. They needed my help. They paid me a lot of money. Um, it was legitimate work. It was it was good work. I'm killing I'm killing terrorists and bad guys, um, and and I'm okay with that. If you're gonna pay me good money, to go do that. I'll go down there and do that. No problem. Um, so, you know, but besides, you know, with my you know guys like me. We always want to go back to the well and take another drink, you know. We, yeah. you know, and honestly, yeah. I'm not old. I mean, I'm 60 years old, but you know, I, you you'll never know. I mean, I'm as spry as I ever was when I was 30 years old. I'm, I'm still strong. I'm still healthy. I'm still, you know, I can still function. I can go down range right now and keep up with the best. Not a bit, not a problem, you know, because I've always taken care of myself. And I know, you know, that people say that all the time, but no, I'm actually living proof of it, man. I mean, <laughs> walking, talking proof. Um, so, I mean, I do that on purpose. I keep my, I maintain myself, my health, um, so that I can go out and do those things. If that opportunity arises, right. Go out and freaking start slinging lead again. Hell, I'm actually thinking about doing another pro boxing match and a competitive bodybuilding show, um, this year, this summer at the age of 60, just again, check the bucket list, you know, because yeah. not, not because I got anything to prove to anybody or myself. It's because it gives me purpose. Right. Yeah. Um, and it keeps me focused and driven it keeps me in shape um you know and it's it's good for the spirit and uh you know it keeps it keeps this you know keeps me tempered so um hey dill can i yeah i don't i don't mind doing everything i love doing everything i don't i don't I'm, look I, i'm the i get bored if i just do one thing and I don't do <laughs> that's well. what i was gonna I say thing, I get yeah. yeah 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 well i was like, gonna this ask me i built in Bali. go ahead no, no I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I want—I don't want to interrupt you, but I do want to ask this: What was your, what was your reputation? If you ask other guys, whether from the unit or the soft community in general, or people you worked with even out after that, what's your reputation? How are you perceived? Are you somebody where they're like Comstock? He's a fucking bulldog. He will go after it. He's—he's he's a you know, get on the ground and and just hustle kind of dude. Um, is he? Is are you somebody that's considered? Uh, you know that 5d chess player like what do you what's you how do you see your own reputation um you know i've had people call me you know cocky right so i like that one he's he's cocky he's cocky but here's the thing i can back it up and so it's not cockiness okay um it's confidence i'm very confident everything i do and i and look i i Look at my website. Look at my resume. Look at my yep. bios. I can back it up and then some. Um, if well, you I fucking and you better some, be. You better be confident. You can't go into that timid. You can't do anything yeah. you've done in life and be timid. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, I'm very confident in everything I do, and once I commit to something, I see it to its end. That's the other thing. Is um, it's not a, it's not a question of quitting. I don't put myself in a position where I might want to quit it. I'm either I'm either going to see it all the way through, or I'm not even going to start. So that's the other part of it is I commit to whatever it is I'm going to do. I think it out and go, yeah, I'm going to do it. This is this is the goal, right? If I start martial arts training, it's not to become a purple belt. It's become, you know, like in my case, a six degree black belt. Okay, um, go as far as I can. If I'm going to box, I'm not going to go out there and get be an amateur and get punched in the nose a couple of times. I'm going to go all the way to the professional level. Um, you know, so these are, yeah. if I'm going to be in the 82nd Airborne Division as an infantryman, which is what I was, I was really good at digging foxholes and cleaning my M16. I decided, you know what? Okay, I, yeah. it's a good start. Now I'm going to go to the top. I'm going to skip Ranger, Green Berets. And I'm going to go right up to the top and be a Delta Force operator. And that's exactly what I did, right, at the age of 23. So, um, you know, I'm very, um, I'm very tenacious. I'm a fighter. 
I don't, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't quit. I don't retreat. Um, you know, that doesn't mean I don't fail. I fail a lot because failing is learning. Um, but I'm persistent and I'm committed and I don't do anything that I don't want to do. So I'm the guy that's probably never really worked a day in his life because everything I've done, I've wanted to do it. Yeah. And so yeah. everything is like, you know, yeah, it's like a very, 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 you know, life is but a dream. So here I am. <laughs> right. So let me, let me ask about one of the things that you clearly didn't see through to the end. And I'm very interested into why, because I think it says probably a lot about our country. You make the move to go to Hollywood and you're, you know, do stars earn stripes and all that stuff. And you talk about some of those experiences in the book, but then I know in your Instagram, I've read your comments on Hollywood and how disillusioned you were when you got out there. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was it that disillusioned you and why was that a path that looks like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you were like, yeah, not for me, not the path I want to go down. Yeah. So I had no intention to go in there to begin with, right? So a long story short, what happened was they actually started with Discovery Channel. They decided they wanted to start a TV, uh, what do you call it? Like a reality show called um, One Man Army. And there happened to be a SEAL out there who was friends with one of the producers. He goes, hey, I got just the guy for you. They gave my name. They called me. The interviews happened. Um, I got selected. And so when I when that happened, I thought, okay, that's kind of cool. Um, I get to do a reality show. And I kind of looked at it as um, closing the chapter of part of my life. So let me do this. It'd be a nice closure to my next life, whatever that's going to be. Yeah. I thought it was going to be a one-time deal, no big deal. So I did it. And well, I guess I did well enough that, you know, NBC recognized that they called me, go, Hey, we like what we saw, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Would you like to try out for this show? And I think there were 10,000 applicants for stars and stripes and me and, uh, you know, seven other guys got selected for that, you know, and, um, very long interview process included actually flying out to California, to Universal Studios, doing an on-set, you know, uh, interview in front of all the cameras and directors, you know, and uh, and next thing I know, I'm on TV and I'm like, okay, maybe this is something that's, this is maybe my yeah. calling. Maybe I'm going to be on TV a lot. Yeah. And I did. And so then that led to more phone calls, more meetings, more on uh, TV shows, um, you know, and then before you know it, I'm the poster boy for another uh, conservative uh, production company called Zulu 7 at the time. Um, now it's called Blue Wolf. And we started making zombie movies, this and that and that. But so when I started getting into these other areas with these other TV shows and, and uh, I started to realize, man, you know, not not taking away it's hard work only because a lot of there's a lot of moving parts to making a, a production movie. Right. TV show, I get it, um, and uh, it was very interesting. But but I had a hard time with with some of the personalities, man, um, and, and the people in the bit. Now there were some really good people there. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like you know, for example, I think Terry Crews is just like yeah. one of the most awesome dudes I've ever met. Dean Kane. There's a lot of guys that I met. You know, Christian Kane. That I thought, okay, these are pretty stellar individuals. You know, they're you know like minded in a lot of ways. But then there were others. I'm like, Jesus Christ, Jiminy, man. And then it, it wasn't long before. It was a couple of years after I got out there, and they, they kept asking me. I say they, my management team and some of the producers said, you should you should move to Los Angeles. We can have you on every show, every set. Uh, right. They all kind of looked at me and thought I would could possibly be the next Danny Trail, right? Sure. And 
first I was like, well, I don't want to be the bad guy, man. I want to be the good guy with all the good looking <laughs> chicks, right? But like, okay, if you're going to pay me a lot of money. But then I thought about it. I'm like, do I really want to do this? Because, you know, here I am faking the funk, pretending to be something, you know, that all these other people are pretending, right? To be superheroes right. and all these right. things. That's, that's not me. And it doesn't feel right. I said, it's, I'm a guy of substance and acting. Okay, it was kind of cool for a minute, but it's not what I want to do. So I ended up, long story short, just said, you know, it's not for me. And I ended up flying to Hong Kong, uh, lived in Hong Kong, and I uh, was doing security there for a multi-billionaire investment banker. Um, that was a little bit, you know, a little bit more in line with who I am and what I do. That led to me flying to Jakarta. Actually, met I met my wife in, uh, in Hong Kong. And then uh, anyways, followed her back to Indonesia. And long story short, we started this business over there. And then I started getting involved in these other activities like in Yemen and, and other places. Um, but this is kind of, yeah, I, I'll share one more story with you. This is, the audience might find this interesting. So I actually, while I was in Indonesia, I got a call. I won't name the names from a, a Hollywood celebrity. Good guy. He said, hey, I got a friend in a lot of trouble, female, 31 years old, very beautiful, very rich um, you know, so he had everything going for her, right? And she's in a lot of trouble, being threatened, blah, blah, blah. And she needs a bodyguard. And she goes, oh, he's, said, he's, I'm the only guy he would recommend. So anyway, long story short, I ended up becoming a bodyguard for this 31-year-old multi-millionaire. Um, had everything going for her. Gorgeous. There's nothing wrong. Never been married. No kids. Lots of money. Had her own companies. It's like, Jesus Christ, wow. dude. And she fell in love with me, right? Literally fell in love with me. And um, I'm her bodyguard. So anyways... I won't go into all the details. I'm actually writing kind of a book about that. But um, so now I, after some time, I'm like, you know, I start to realize, damn, she's like actually has feelings for me and, and didn't want me to leave. Right. She she did all kinds of things for me, um, paid me a lot of money. Um, I probably shouldn't even say this, but I got paid several thousand dollars a day as a bodyguard. Wow. Okay. A day. Wow. <laughs> okay. And I'm working all the time, full time. Uh, if you want to call even work. Um, just more like accompanying her and just looking out for her. Um, anyways, she had everything that most men would dream of, no doubt. Yeah. And she wanted me, and I realized, you know what? This will this would last for about three months, and then I'm going to kill all her friends because they're all, like, super liberal. You know, they looked at me like, what? he's a veteran? Is that what they look like? Like, I was a puppy, yeah. right? Like, they'd never met anybody like me before. Like, because that's how you know these were like millionaires and billionaires and uh and so and i told her i said you know i don't want your money i could have been a millionaire overnight i said i don't i gotta make my own way in life and this ain't it this is not what i want you know yeah. and i literally walked away i mean i literally turned around and walked away one morning and we didn't have a falling out broke her heart you know and i just had to do what i had to do man i was shit dude i was 50 I got to do the math now. I think I was 55 also. Um, and she was 31 years old, you know, and wow. uh, she was a stunner, man, a stunner. But, you know, when you get older, I guess you get wiser and uh, you start, you know, reprioritizing what's important to you in life. And it wasn't the money. It was um, the self the self-fulfillment part of it that I needed more than anything else, you know. And Because you, um, you would have felt like a kept man if you'd gone with her. Is that what yeah, you absolutely, man. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and exactly. And I didn't, you know, it's just not who I was. And, and I had to be realistic. It's like, you know, it's, it's not going to work out. That, that um, it's sound, a whole different culture, a whole different lifestyle. I don't know if you can hear that sound. That sound is every listener smashing their head against the wall going, holy fucking shit. <laughs> if only that fucking had happened to me. Right. 
Oh my! So you you have no idea. And she it, she one day she's like, look, she goes, I was she had a brand new BMW 750 Li. I love BMWs. I got you know pets. I love them. And she goes, you know what? She goes, here, this is your car now. Um, and I'm gonna go. She went out and bought her black one. <laughs> she gives me the white one. She gives it to me, you know. And I'm like, holy shit! And and then we were going out for dinner every night. Dinner was fifteen thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a night. Dinner, just dinner, you know. And it was just. It's insane. And, you know, I'm like, and I realized, oh my God, man, it's like, it was just too much. You know, had you ever just, been in a relationship was, like that? Really had you ever been in a relationship like that where, where she, where your partner is more successful, at least on paper in, in, in those sense, in those terms than you are? Um, No. Because I think no, that would be that, that, really that, that, disorienting. I think that'd be really yeah. fucking dis- I think a lot of guys don't know what they would be like if they were in that situation. Like you yeah. think about that well, and think it's cool, but it's it's a different animal. Yeah. It is a different animal. And the other the other side of it is, you know, she inherited all this money. Her parents were stupid rich, right? She was educated in Australia. I go on and on and on. So she had wealth, she had a company, she was managing that. Okay, good for her. She was not a dumb girl, she was very smart. Um, but um it wasn't, it, for me, it didn't really matter if she was more successful than me. It was just that the culture and the environment was not what I was raising or used to. I, mm. I couldn't thrive there. I couldn't. It's like the people were so fake and pompous and full of shit. You know, it's like, you know, they can only talk about four things at any one time. It's either, it's either talk about money, hotels, uh, wine or talk about other women's dress and clothes and shoes. And I'm like, Jesus uh, Christ, Jimmy, you know, yeah. I mean, it was like very idle. Minded, you know? It's like an idol. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then when I said, Hey, he's a veteran. Like, oh, is that what they look like? It's like, they, they were totally clueless about the rest of the world, you know? And, uh, I said, I can't, I can't be a part of this. We have nothing yeah. in common, man. You know? Yeah. And that kind of was the, your MO with all of this, right. With going to Hollywood and then ending up in that situation that it just, if, yeah. if you're not if you're not getting dirt under your nails, it kind of doesn't feel right, right? No, not at all, man. Not at all. You know, so I, you know, it did feel right. So I went back to Indonesia, and then uh, you know, I do now. I'm doing what I want to do, man. I, I go out yeah. there, get dirty. I still sweat. You know, I play with my dogs. I do security consulting. You know, um, I still do different types of security work. I do bodyguard work. Um, you know. I'm still, I'm still an action guy, man. You know, I can put on a suit and I can go to big corporate meetings, business meetings, you know, with wealthy people, important people. And then I can also put on a damn security uniform, you know, yeah. and go out and do security guard shit, you know, I can do it all, man. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. So what, what did you think when you were writing your books, your first book, and then the piece that you're working on now and, and that you're constantly going back to writing, but do you feel like, a, do you feel like you're misunderstood or that you need to explain yourself in your own words? Or does it also help you clear your head to put it down on paper and go, hey, what the fuck did I just do for the past decade? Man, I got to write that shit down because that's a lot of stuff to unpack. Like, what is that process like for you? What does that do for you? Yeah, so um, technically I've written three books. The first one was a hand-to-hand combat manual in the Army for 3rd Special Forces Group. As I was told, it became the base document for the hand-to-hand, Army-wide hand-to-hand program. Uh, I was told that. Haven't been able to confirm it. Don't really even care. So I have a copy of it. Um, two, then I wrote my book, American Badass. And then I wrote another book 
um, after my ex-wife, I published it and it took it down within a week, you know, a lot of drama with that shit. But, uh, so uh, the reason I wrote American Badass is because when I was on the set, uh, of Stars and Stripes, right. I met Chris Kyle, the American sniper. And, uh, I didn't know he wrote the book American sniper. I was like, Oh, check that out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, you know, I commented on it and praised him on it. And he's like, you know, hey, you know, you know, I really didn't write it so much. I had a ghostwriter, right? Yeah, no big deal. And he goes, but I want to read your book. And, uh, he was 32 at the time. I was 47. And I'm like, oh, shit, well, I don't have a book <laughs> yet. <laughs> and so as soon as he said that, I'd already been contemplating. And now that was just the, the push that I needed. He goes, I want to read your book and grow up to be like you. And so I turned around, got my phone, called my management team, said, hey, man, we're going to write a book. I said, I wanted it to be an autobiography, but as weird as it sounds, I don't want it to be just about me. Um, I want to write a book to motivate and inspire young men in America, particularly. Why? Because they're becoming so androgynous and effeminate, you know, emasculated. It's like, you know, I want to inspire and motivate, you know, kids to, you know, young men to grow up and be warriors and be good, strong men, you know, like the kind that I was grown, you know, raised yeah. by as I grew up, you know. And so that's kind of why I wrote the book to tell my stories. But really, you know, I wanted people to know, if you notice, if you read the book, it's not all about how many guys that shot, you know, they one shot three guys, they two shot five more guys. Right, you know? so who right, cares? Right. right? So, um, you shoot one guy that's, that's like shooting a thousand guys who gives a shit. Um, but I wanted to tell the stories and also show the side of me that's show the humor side of me. Also the part of me where, um, I can laugh at myself, expose myself, you know, have some humility and show people that, you know, being, being a man, um, being an American soldier, being a, being a Delta Force operator, being an OGA paramilitary, you know, um, we're all human beings and we all have feelings. And, you know, and, and what makes us so good is not because we're some kind of hardcore, you know, murderous son of a bitch. It's because we're actually men that have feelings and empathy and sympathy for others. And that's the that's the key part of it. Right. Um and so I've always, you know, I've always felt that way. It's like, you know, I mean, there's a side of me, you know, I don't want to say a sensitive side. It sounds kind of girlish, but, you know, there's a side of me that actually gives a shit, you know, about yeah. people, you know. And yeah. so, you know, and, uh, and some people I need to, I care so much about them. I got to kill them because they're bad news, you know, and then there's other people I got to save them, you know. Um, but so that's, so I wrote the book for that purpose, really. And then actually I wrote it up until my life, up until 2012. But yeah. since that time, I've actually done quite a bit more, um, right. which I thought my, you know, I thought that was all over. And it's like it just never seems to stop, man. Every time I turn around, I'm, I find myself in some other situation. Like, How the hell do I end up here? Like, for example, you know, the mercenary work, you know, I mean, legitimate mercenary work. Now, then I find myself chasing Iranians that in Turkey that, you know, heisted my, my clients in Singapore. Or, you know, and, and, and I need to bring some justice and recover some things. And then I've got myself, you know, helping people escape in the Middle East that have lost their passports that are we call it a velvet cage. Um, I found myself getting involved in all these different things at different times that when you when I explain it to people like, really, it sounds like some Hollywood stuff. Yeah. It's literally yeah. it's amazing, man. And, and it's, I, I can support it. It's just, I don't know if I'm in the wrong place at the right time or the right time at the wrong place. I don't know what the hell is going on, but it's like the twilight zone, you know? Yeah. Uh, I went to Singapore one time. I had a guy invite me to come over, ready for this. A very, 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 very wealthy guy. Um, invites me over to train his dog. Train his dog in Singapore, right? German Shepherd. 
So I go over there and he's flying me back and forth for a week at a time. And I'm training his dog three times a day for like 10, 15 minutes at a time. You know, the rest of the time I'm vacationing in Singapore, right? And getting paid. <laughs> and I was going back and forth. So I got to know him really well and his family and his kids and the dogs and stuff. And uh, I'm getting paid good money, fly around and train guys, damn dog in another country. Um, I don't know how cool is that, right? So right, that right. led to a conversation where he needed some help one day. He's like, hey, you know, this is what happened. Um, literally got robbed. His wife got robbed from a guy from another country, deliberately flew into their country and put a knife to her. Uh, wow. robbed her, you know, and yeah. they tried to extort him for more money to start threatening the kids. And now this guy's, like I said, he's like multi, 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 multi-millionaire, right? And, yeah, uh, they, yeah, yeah. you know, they're taking us to a whole other level. Now it's like, you know, you either pay us more money, we're going to kill your kids, and you know. And so now the question is, hey, hey, Comstock, you still do security stuff? Yeah. Can you help? Yeah. Uh, of course, there's going to be a price tag that goes with that because I can't sure. work for free because I had to go travel around and do things. But, you know, here, here's something I go from dog trainer to freaking <laughs> a set traveling assassin, you know, to go take care of business because guys are out here trying to rob people and kill people for freaking money yeah. you know, all around yeah. the world. We live in a dangerous place, man. The world is a dangerous, dangerous place, you know. And, uh, you know, I guess, unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't know how you want to look at it. I, you know, I'm in this world and I come across these things all the time. But, uh, you know, it brings me fortune. Um, you know, it brings me fortune. It brings me favor. It brings me, you know, it brings me notoriety, sometimes not good notoriety, but it brings me, you know, it puts me out there. And, and, uh, hence one of the reasons I'm here right now in the Philippines, I'm working on something that I was invited in on and, uh, it's going to be very profitable, very dangerous, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, but it's what I do, man. You know, I, tra- I travel and make money. And, and at night you sleep with no regrets. You go, hey, this is what I love to do. Like this is you're not sitting there going, ah, oh, shit. I, I every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Like you're well, you're relishing it, right? Yeah, no, dude, I, I have no regrets. I'm living the, I am living yeah. the dream, man. Yeah, literally living the dream. Um, and every aspect of it, my personal life, my social life, professional life. Um, and I'm just grateful that I'm very healthy. You know, I'm not dealing with yeah. sickness. I'm grateful my family and all my children, everybody's healthy. Um, you know, it's, I mean, I really am living the life fulfilled. I mean, I could die right now with a smile on my face. I don't want to, but, you know. Um, right, right. I've done everything I wanted to do. You know, so, so it, no so regrets. It, no, I mean, it's a, it's a hell of a thing because you're right. I mean, your life is basically what Liam Neeson has made an acting career over trying to capture some of right and that's and that's a hell of a thing there's not many people that can say that and what i wonder is when you first started becoming let's call it a public figure you do stars and stripes you have the book come out and all this stuff what did that mean for you i mean you'd gone from tier one stuff you'd gone to security stuff you weren't out there now suddenly and, and your book i will say seems very it seems like OBSEC was at the, it was a core tenant of that book. Like it is, I'm like, there's a shit ton more that you can tell is left out of the book than is put into it. And I'm, but I'm, I'm like, what was that experience like for you to suddenly have people know who you are and that you're somebody that can be looked up online and that your life story is there, at least, you know, the unclassified parts of it. Well, what is that like for you? Was that, did that mean anything or did it not bother you at all? Well, the only reason that I even let it be a thing is because 
suddenly I'm out there and I thought, okay, I have a choice. I can slip away back into shadows, you know, of anonymity and, um, you know, be the great guy again. Um, like a lot of people I know, a lot of my friends, you know, they're great men. And uh, I said, look, first of all, the Russians and Chinese, they don't care what's in my head. I mean, you know, any intel I had was gone dead three days ago, you know, so there's no point in being a gray man when you're civilian. But, you know, the reason I decided to, since I was out there, I made it a, a, a point to, if I'm going to do this and I want to do some good. And so my mission was to motivate and inspire other people, to help other people, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I started doing. So that's why I got into coaching and mentoring. Um, I've coached and mentored a lot of young men who joined the military. I've coached and mentored a lot of older men um, that want to re- get, recover and recapture their lives. I've coached women. Um, you know, I've, cover, I've coached a r- broad range of people over the years um, to help them make their lives better, right? And so I use my experience to that purpose. How can I help you be the best version of yourself? And look, it's not about being a Delta Force. Look, I was in Delta Force. That was a long time ago. That's not what defines me. A lot of people define me by that. But look, since that time, I've done so much more. I've achieved so right. much more. I got a PhD for crying out loud. You know, I've got a lot of skill sets, a lot of experience, and a lot of other areas. Running businesses, um, and on and on. So I have a lot to share because I've done a lot. Um, and so there is what you know. I'm, I'm a teacher. I like you know. It's my passion. I like teaching. I like helping. Um, of course, I want to get paid for my time. Um, so, you know, it works out. I get to do what I like to do. I get to help other people and I get paid for it. So what do you no find people? Yeah. What do you find people come to you for? What if there's a common denominator? What is it that they're looking for when they come to you? Yeah, they're, actually. So the main demographic that, that it comes to me, the main one, I call them the old man clan. It's men between 45 and 59. These are the guys that have put the kids through college, put the roof over their head. You know, um, did all those things. They flew a desk every day from eight to five. You know, they got fat and they look like they're nine months pregnant. And the kids went to college. The wife don't talk to me anymore. And they look at me going, how's that guy do this shit? Right. And he's still in shape. You see my you know, young women. And so they want a part of the dream. How do I get that dream? Is it still possible? And of course it is, you know, and I show them how to get their, some of their youth back, definitely get their health back. But I have to I have to teach them how to think, not what to think. Okay. So that's the important key part, how to think, not what to think. And so I go, so those are the guys I I work with primarily. I show them, you know, you can't buy into these paradigms. You cannot be, you know, you know, what everybody, you know, once you're over 40, you got one leg in the grave bullshit. No, you don't. I'm 59 years old. I'm still freaking way outside the grave, you know, running the graveyard, freaking sprinting, you know, naked, with naked women, you know? So, um, and so, you know, you got to change how you think. So that's my primary demographic. They want to recapture and recover some of their youth. They wanted to do things that they had to forfeit or thought they had to forfeit because they're married and you got kids, responsibilities, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like, dude, you giving up, you gave up a lot of your life when you didn't have to because you could have done all that and still been married and had kids. Okay, look, I've been married, I got kids, I got lots of kids. Got lots of ex-wives too. I'm not real good at that, but I don't care. What matters is the kids. Um, and so the other demographics, it's, it's two others. I do coach some women. I do get women from the old man clan. Here's what's funny about those. They're women also in their 40s and 50s. And they come to me like, hey, um, I'm getting a divorce. and But I'm so codependent on this other guy that, you know, I'm not sure uh, I can make it on my own. Can you tell me how to think? So I got to teach them how to survive on their own, right? And I'm not a marriage counselor. And, you know, I'm the worst guy for that. But I teach them how to think. 
so they can be independent. That's what they choose to do. The other group was men between 33 and 37. They tend to be entrepreneurs, business guys, sometimes veterans, sometimes not. They're coming to me for a business skill set mindset. Um, then I have men between 19 and 26. These guys are either in the military or want to go in the military special operations. So I have a program just for those guys to get them going. So those are my three main demographics um, that come to me. But it all seems like um, it, at the end of the day, everything I teach these people and the reason I think they come to me is because the question is, Comstock, how did you do all this? How were you able to do all this? And and honestly, the first time somebody asked me that question, I'm like, how did I do all of what? Right? I just thought I was keeping up with the Jones. Didn't realize how much I had done on my yeah. life. And yeah. then after doing some work and some research and reflecting, I realized that um, the, way I, the reason I was able to achieve so much in life is literally because of a way that I was thinking that's very, um, uh, very different. And so what I mean by that is I follow a science. It's literally my success is based on science. And I didn't know that. I didn't know it had a name, didn't know it was a thing. I learned it when I was 15 years old. And because I learned it on my own at 15 by accident, um, it has really been the foundation of reason why I've been so successful at everything. Even at the age of 23, I was the youngest Delta right. operator at the time to ever make it through at 23, right? right. Um, it's because of how I was thinking my certain mindset. And I learned what it was. I've been able to now package it and teach it to other people. Um, it's literally science. It's literally physics. Um, it, has, it has nothing to do with willpower. has nothing to do with philosophy. And I don't know everybody's thinking, how is that possible? Yeah, it's not even, it doesn't even have to do anything with hard work. Not even hard work or smart work. I'm like, what? Yeah, it's how you think. And I go into a whole other realm of the metaphysics, autogenic conditioning, and a few other areas, but all supported by science. To include Nikola Tesla, Albert Einstein, and many others, Emil Kuh, um, you know, support this. So it's this change of thinking and how to think that's important. It's not what to think. Look, college teaches you what to think. They never teach yeah. you how to think, though, right. how to apply right. all this stuff, right? And um, and therein is a difference. So um, well, been, that- it's been really, and it's it's a it's a it's a labor of love, man, and passion. I get to. I got coaches, I mean, clients all around the world, everywhere. I've, I've trained them from freaking Venezuela, Ecuador, to India, to Africa, to Australia, United States, yeah. you name it, you know. And so I've got friends everywhere because we've become friends because we spend a lot of time talking and chatting and carrying on. And uh, and so I've learned a lot of things from them. And uh, coolest thing is I got friends everywhere. I can go anywhere in the country and go, hey, I'm about here. Got a place for me? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when the world's like your neighborhood, you just you just know the different neighborhoods, you know. And I think yeah. I think that's absolutely people that have been in the soft world and certainly post soft the stuff that you have done. Oh my God, I mean, your familiarity with so many different areas of the world is, you know, there's not a lot of people that have that kind of institutional knowledge. I wanted I want to just um, hit on a couple of these little bullet points because they are, they're just little tidbits that you throw out in your book. But Ku's law, whenever imagination, willpower are in conflict, imagination will inevitably win. I can only imagine where your coursework goes from there, but that that seems to me to be a really pivotal jumping off point that can solve a lot of problems. Co- coaching your imagination Absolutely. to not be in conflict with your willpower, basically, right? Yeah, because I, the best way to kind of 
give an example is New Year's Eve, right? So everybody has a New Year's Eve resolution. I'm going to lose 100 pounds this year, right? And uh, and then three weeks later, when you see them, they're eating Twinkies and hoes. And like, what happened? Well, you know, I had to, you know, I'm going to start tomorrow, right? All the excuses pop up, right? Because they had willpower to bottle that champagne bottle on New Year's Eve, and they got really motivated and excited. But listen, willpower wanes. Right. Okay, wane. We all, it wanes in all of us, right? Um, it doesn't last. you you got to figure out a way to keep it going. So the only way it keeps going is imagination. You have to imagine the outcome. You have to dream the possibility and chase the dream, literally. And it's, it literally is a part of the imagination. And it has everything to do with the nervous system, right? So what we're going to end up doing is tuning the nervous system for performance. And it's not just immediate performance, personal performance, but it's also future performance. It's a function of the nervous system. It's a function of physics. It's a function of energy. Okay. And therein is the key. One of the keys, right? It's, it's, it's how you think actually affects your physiology. What you think is affects your, your, your physiology probably 99% more than your biochemistry, right? So, for example, neuro-linguistic programming, programming. If you always say, I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm sick, and you believe it, you're going to get sick, yeah. right? Yeah. Because what it does is it affects you at the protein level, down-regulates genes, blah, 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 blah. Whereas if you're always confident, um, you say, you know what, I'm healthy, I'm strong, I'm fast, I'm happy, then you're probably going to be all those things, right? Because it's, the, it's not even a placebo effect. What you're doing is you're tuning your nervous system, you're altering your DNA, you're altering your, yourself at the cellular level for, for, for performance. Um, I can literally show people how to literally overnight enhance your performance in anything. And it'd be, it's amazing, like, whoa. Um, you know, I had a guy one time, he couldn't bench press 225 pounds, one of my clients. You know, he tried it, couldn't get it up. I said, okay, this is what I want you to do. You're going to go home. And I gave him this. I told him what to think. Okay, how to think. Um, I said, we're going to come back and we're going to give this another shot. But, you, you know, and he didn't lift any more weights. And he came back a couple of days later and sure enough, lifted 225 pounds. And like, he was stunned. Like, wow. And I, and I showed him why, right? It had nothing to do with strength. Um, it had to actually do with uh, tuning the nervous system. There's a process. But this is what I go into, right? It's the science of wow. it. And, and everything we do in life is really a function of the nervous system. Uh, whereas, you know, the nervous system is an energy. Where's energy? Energy is everywhere. Everything has energy. Everything's interrelated. Everything's interconnected. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So it's always there. Um, it's what we do with it, how we harness it, how we guide it to, to get, uh, to get it to, to benefit us. Right. And so, so I, like I said, I go into the science. I don't go, you know, you, listen, I'm going to throw some of my, <laughs> No, they're not even my competitors, but, you know, there's some big names out there. You know, they'll tell you, you know, think positive, you know, think positive, you know, don't quit. You know, what the, what the hell does that mean? Think yeah. positive, don't quit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You think positive all you want, but I'm going to tell you what thinking positive actually means and the steps to go with thinking positive and, 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 and how to actually do it so that your nervous system starts to change and adapt, right? And grow. Yeah. Therein is the key, right? It's just, it's a it's how to think, not what to think. You have to say it all day long. Hey, don't quit, don't quit. Don't yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. How how sophisticated were you with that? If you discovered that at fifteen, by the time you were twenty three, going through Delta Selection, how sophisticated were you with that? Has that continued to grow exponentially in the years? Sure. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I, it was the reason I made it through Delta. Um, I learned a lesson at the age of fifteen, and got a second i'll share the story real quick I'll give, the, I'll give you the highlights um so i lived in germany I, my dad was in the military 
uh, the past time in, when I lived in Germany, the American uh, uh, housing areas was sports, baseball, basketball, right. football. Right. This particular year, I was playing baseball. I was a terrible baseball player. You know, anyways, I played at left field. If I wasn't left out at all, I mean, I really sucked. Um, and so, and one day, the weirdest thing happened was we were playing this team called the All-Star. They were like the best players out there, right? It was a big deal. All the neighborhood, you know, families were out there. You know, it was a big, big deal for us. And uh, my coach was like, Comstock, I want you to play third base. I'm like, what? I, I was mortified. You know, I never played in field. I barely played left field. I could barely find my way to left field. And now you want to play third base. And I had all these visions of bad things happening. Yeah. All those bad things actually happened, right? And so I was, I was so embarrassed. You know, I had parents from the other team coming over and chewing my ass out. And I was like, Jesus Christ, all the mistakes out here, right? It was, it was insane. It was so bad. I hid in the dugout and waited till everybody went home before I ever came back out. So the next day, uh, oh yeah, in that particular game, our catcher got kicked in the balls, right? He, so he was out for the season, right? So now the next day I go to practice. Um, because I don't quit. I'm not a quitter. Even though I was humiliated and embarrassed, I showed up anyways. And the coach goes, Comstock, I want you to play catcher. And I'm like, are you insane? I mean, did you see, not see what I did at third base? Right, right. nada. And so yeah. I couldn't get my head around, why would you have me do that? But I couldn't. There were much better player, baseball players on the team than me. They could have picked anybody, but he kept wanting me to do it. And so I thought, man, you know, I don't know if it's some kind of cruel joke or what was going on. But, you know, in my fashion, I couldn't say no. I'm like, yes, sir, three bags full. Put me in, coach. Not that I knew what I was doing. So I had about 30 minutes to practice playing catcher. And it wasn't even practice. You know, it was everybody giving me, you know, advice. Don't do this. Look out for that. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah, yeah. I had 30 minutes. Got too dark. And so, um, you know, game practice was over. The next day, we're playing the All-Stars again. And I'm going to be the catcher for this very big, important game. So I go home. And I'm thinking, man, what did I get myself into? Then I thought, well, maybe I just don't show up. I have to get another catcher. But nah, I can't do that, right? I'm a team player. And so I got really nervous. I got really desperate. I went home really early. I went to bed around 730. And I remember laying in my bed for probably five, six hours at least laying that long in my bed. I had my headphones on for my music. Still remember the song. You know, I remember this now. I was, what, 13? And I was listening to the um, to the uh, Bar Kays, Daz, Daz, Disco, Daz. <laughs> I still remember that song, man. I played it over and over and over. And as I was thinking about that song, I imagined playing catcher. I imagined every possible contingency, every, you know, every ball, catching every ball. If I couldn't catch it, I'd stop it with my body, but nothing got behind me. Yeah. I saw myself making double plays, triple plays. I, I experienced it like it was really happening in my dream. I could sense everything. Well, I did you, did, sorry, Dale, did you have, did you have any bad versions of that go through your head? Or did it so happen that they were all positive no. outcomes? Was that intentional? It all positive. And that was yes, intentional. Okay. Yeah. Yes. It all has to be positive. The, the only negative would be, okay, what if this happened? Then I do this, right? So I always had a positive response to anything that might be a negative, right? Like mm -hmm. if I missed the ball, it didn't miss my mitt. Yep. Uh, damn it, it hits me in the face. I don't care if I'm stopping the ball, right? Right, right, right. Right. Face, right? So, but I thought of it in those terms. So next morning, I'm walking to the baseball field. And I remember this very vividly. By the way, um, memory is tied to emotion. The more emotional something is, the more you're likely to remember it, right? So this is why I remember every nuance. Walking to, to uh, the baseball field at 730 in the morning. I'm walking along. It's a 15-minute walk. I remember spring in Germany. Um, there was dew on the grass and the clover leaf. Okay, my cleats. I was wearing black uh, Adidas, uh, black and orange Adidas uh, baseball cleats. They were wet. 
And I remember everything. I was very stoic. I was very calm. I wasn't anxious. Nothing, man. Just like really cool. I show up to the field. Coaches like Comstock suit up. I did get kitted up. And then uh, all the parents saw what was going on. Then here they come like hyenas, man. Hey, coach, what are you doing? What's going on? Right, right in front of me too. They didn't even try to hide it, man. You know. And my coach did something that I thought was, you know, this is the first time I really saw leadership. Um, and I remember my coach checked everybody right there. He's like, hey, I'm the coach. I decide who plays, when they play, where they play, how they play, how long they play. He goes, that's my job. Your job sitting in the bleachers to support your kids. You want to do my job, do it right now. Otherwise, move out. And they all, like, walked away huffing and puffing. And I looked at him like, holy shit, coach got my back. Yeah. Right? And he just looked yeah. at me and goes, get back to work. And I'm like, okay. And so, anyways, make a long story short, game started. Everything I imagined happened. I made double plays. I made triple plays. Plays. I stopped every ball. Not one ball got past me. If it meant sacrificing my balls to stop the ball, that's what I was doing. Nothing happened, right? Um, when it was over, both teams awarded me the game ball as the most valuable player of the game. And I played catcher from there on every day. I was the man. I was a super yeah. catcher after that, right? With zero experience, no practice. Suddenly, I'm, I created this, this reality, this, this person I became yeah. overnight, literally. I took that lesson all the way through, got me through Delta Force selection. There was another thing that happened to me that, you know, I almost got kicked out of Delta Force, um, OTC. And uh, I remember what I did for baseball, became Top Gun. Okay. I went from being zero to hero, (laughs) literally. And, uh, And so I realized this thing that I'm doing works. And that caused me to start really researching, investigating it. And it brought me to, it's brought me all the success that I have today. Um, it's and you, how I think. And you did it every time before you went out the wire too, didn't you? It seems like. Yeah. Based it, on the book. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's exactly, man. Um, we can manifest the good and the bad. Yeah. We can, uh, our performance is based on how we think. Again, I keep saying how we think. It's not yeah. what we think. It's how we think. There's a how to this thing, okay? Um, it's And so that's, you know, it's, it's not a secret, but there's a methodology to it that you have to understand to be able to apply it, right? But once you get to that point, which is very simple to do, um, you can literally not only manifest and create your – enhance your personal performance, like literally on the spot. Like I mentioned the guy from Bench Press in 225 mm-hmm. to also what I call – I call it future pacing – creating your reality down the road, whatever it is, your business, for example. Okay. Like my company yeah. in Bali, I imagined that in 2006, didn't know it was going to happen. It was a fleeting thought. In fact, wow. I was thinking about Gilligan's Island. I thought, how cool would it be to live on Gilligan's Island with a white pair of pants and never get dirty, got two hot chicks and the place is clean and tidy and it never rains and never snows. It's heaven. Right. Wow. And I thought about yeah. that. So how cool would that be? And I'm not living on Gilligan's Island, but I'm living on Bali, which is kind of cool. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, living this, I'm living in this tropical paradise, doing what I want to do, and, and, and I'm happy, you know? And it's like, wow, I've arrived. What is it? What has that done for you health-wise? Because you talk in Instagram, you talk about all your injuries. In the book, you go through the horrific chopper crash and all that stuff. And the fact that <laughs> then you're on Instagram out there smashing the heavy bag, moving around, your footwork looks great. You know, your mobility looks really good despite all these injuries. Have you used that same visualization um, or conditioning, mental conditioning for your own health? Yes. So I'm, I'm technically 80% disabled. I should be 100%. Um, but I'm 80% and uh, I'll probably get an upgrade to 100%. But you would never know by looking at me, right? Because 
I can sit around here and piss and moan about this hurts and that hurts and how we that. But I don't. What I do think about is how do I enhance my performance and how do I overcome, you know, my physical limitations? Um, you're right. I, I broke L2, L3, my, my back from a helicopter crash, put me basically in a body cast for five months. Um, I've got, you know, I've got fragmentation wounds. I've got torn meniscus, ACLs, um, you know, lots of broken bones. I got, you know, multiple concussions. I can go on and on and on. Um, but, uh, you know, you have a choice. You can let those slow you down or you can figure out how to work around those. Right. And, and by the way, the body's designed to heal itself. You just got to know how, again, there's this how word, how to heal it, right. How to give it the, the things it needs to make itself better. Um, I'll be honest with you, you know, everybody was saying, you know, if you have a, a knee injury or an ankle injury, everybody's like, Oh, you got to take it easy. You got to rest. Um, actually, I'm the guy that never took it easy and never rested. I figure, like, hey, if I continue to work the leg and overcome the pain, the body will repair itself because I have to out of necessity, you know, um, within reason. Uh, so yeah. I've been a little bit different. Look, one week after I was out of the hospital with a full body cast on, a full body cast, my, 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 my brother-in-law, he's the guy who always called me cocky, right? And uh, he goes, well, I bet you I can outrun you now and I'll sprint you now. I go, yeah. We went out on the street and we did a 50-yard sprint. I smoked his ass in a body cast. Okay, yeah, there you go, in a body cast. I just got out of a helicopter crash. Um, was that smart? I don't know, but you know, I'm, here. I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still here, and and uh, it worked. So yeah, I use that mindset for everything I do, from relationship building to you know networking to developing a job or an opportunity. It's how you think, man. It's just like talking to a girl, you know. If you really want to talk to a girl, okay, you better have manifest really good positive energy. And I found that it's how I project myself is going to make the difference whether she talks to me or not or whether she likes me or not, right? Um, you know, and there's so I've been able to use it in, in everything that I do in life. Canines, training my dog, understanding my dog's energy. They understand my energy. Um, you know, it's... It's always about this energy, but it's how I think about it. At this point, what's the flash to bang with that for you? Do you need a lot of lead time? Do you need a night before to think about it? Or is something, it is something you can do just like instantly moments before? Instantly. You know what? I've gotten to the point where now I can literally, I can literally manifest things as I'm riding my motorcycle. In fact, the, one of the reasons I, I find that driving in a car works best, it's just like a passenger, um, but even driving the car, but you know, like a passenger's best or an airplane um, or riding a motorcycle. Um, if I'm not actually doing anything, I'm just sitting there. I find this, the, for me, it works the best to imagine what I want and start manifesting it. But I can do it very quickly. But now, here's a, here's a story. In fact, I just shared it a little while ago to one of my coaching clients. This happened to me two years ago. Um, so here in Bali, I had a couple of investors want to talk to me and my partner about some business opportunities. They took us to a police shooting range. Um, one of the guys was a shooter, Ipsic shooter, so they went out to go out and shoot, but they wanted, really just wanted us to watch and talk and carry on. Um, then finally, they asked me if I would be willing to go out, you know, would you like to shoot, right? And uh, I'm like, I really was not interested in shooting. I didn't want to shoot, didn't care about shooting. Um, they were shooting Ipsic guns, you know, race guns. And I'm like, yeah. that's not me. And, uh, but I guess they had heard whatever the rumors, and they kept pressuring me, and finally I thought I could get out of it. I go, no, I'm not shooting those guns. Those are guns can shoot themselves. I mean, look at those bells and whistles and scopes and shit. I said, I don't want to shoot a real man's gun. And the guy pulls a Glock out of the box, goes like this. Like, damn. So now I got to put up. Right? I got to shoot. <laughs> so, so I remember thinking, okay. 
Hi, they loaded the gun up and there was there were six three-inch steel plates about 15 meters downrange uh, radar on this berm and uh and so i realized they're not going to want they don't want to see me go up there and go oh, hold on guys let me warm up a little bit you know they want to see wider that's what they yeah, want to see yeah, they yeah. the rumor, right so and i knew the secret was the secret is don't overthink it so this, so I knew in order for me to do this, I just have to do what my nervous system's already designed to do, for years of practice and training and imagination. So as I walk up to the to the fire line, I'm already imagining the sequence. Um, there was no order in the targets, but I decided I already made my own sequence, and I decided don't overthink it. Don't even think about it. Just do it. All right. Don't think it, just do it. So I got up there and I load the weapon. I pushed the weapon out one time just to check the sights. I brought it back, took a deep breath. And without even thinking, I just sent the gun out, not even picking up the sights, just pulled the trigger and started knocking these targets down. Like ding, 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 ding. Mm -hmm. And they were like, holy shit. And they're all clapping stuff, you know? Yeah. And the reason I was able to do that, because I hadn't shot probably at least six months prior to that. Wow. Here's how I look at it, right? If you go up there and go, okay, I need to do this right. You know, I need to apply the eight fundamentals of combat marksmanship, and breathing and stance, and <laughs> blah, 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 blah. It's like reading the manual, right? Why am yeah. I reading the manual? I already know the manual, right? So all I got to do is entrust my nervous system because, for example, my hand, I can take my finger right now and touch my nose. I can touch my ball here. I can stick it in my ear. All right, I don't have to aim it. I just do it. So when I put a firearm in my hand, okay, it becomes a part of my body. All right, and wherever I point that, just like right now, I can point my finger at you and hit you right in the nose. I can point it at the doorknob over here. I don't have to aim it. It's very, I just do it, right? My mind, my eyes, and my hands work together. Same thing with a gun. I want to shoot that target. I just, my mind says, put the gun over there, and boom, it pulls the trigger. It's an extension of my anatomy. And so that's how that worked, right? So, I was able to do that because I had already programmed the nervous system through years of training and experience and also by positive thinking. If you try to think too hard on something, try to overthink, you yeah. you screwed up. And a good example of that is the movie Maverick, right, with Tom Cruise. It just yeah. came out. What does he tell the other pilot, right? He, a couple of times in the movie, you'll hear him tell the guys, stop thinking, just do it. Stop thinking, just do it, right? It's ironic that he said that because – I know Tom Cruise, you know, he's a Scientologist, right? Scientology actually is, they actually operate in the, in the realm of metaphysics, right? Which is what I'm talking about right now. Metaphysics, energy, frequency, blah, 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 blah. And so I know he's a student of that. Now, I don't know if he wrote that into the script, but he said it. And I think he knows that when it comes to performance, don't think about it, just do it. As long as you're already programmed, it'll happen. If you start thinking about it, as you start to unravel the programming, you, you start screwing up the programming. So that's what he was telling these pilots, just do it and it'll happen. And then it did, right? So the, I use that as an example and a support yeah. my, one of my stories, shooting one, right, um, is all our performance, um, whether it's good or whether it's bad, is also based on how we think about it, right? So if we, if we think, well, what if I miss or what if then you're going to miss? Right, right. This is what happens. If I, what if I can't lift it up? Then you're not going to lift it up. You're going to drop it on yourself. The way right. It is, right, right, um, right. It's how you go in and think about it, right? So, um, well, you know, if she doesn't like me, she doesn't want to talk so, to me. Well, then she's not going to want to like you and talk to you. <laughs> well, well, that's like, did you ever, did you ever jump uh, Stuttgart? Did you ever jump there in Stuttgart, Germany? Stuttgart? Yeah, I used to live there. I used to live there, but not. I but did you ever? There. Did you ever do? Oh, okay, yeah. Because I only say because I always think of that. What you just said. There's the the drop zone there. Um, when I was at, uh, 
when I was part of SOCAF there, um, you jump and the first thing they tell you in, in the pre-jump stuff is like, hey, you know, there's that office building right next to the drop zone. Don't fucking hit the office building. So most of our jumps were canceled because that first chalk, everybody fucking hits the office building, jumps canceled. You would never get to jump. Right. And it's that you're putting that out there. Everybody's thinking about what not to do. And it just automatically perverts whatever it is you're trying to do. Yep. Actually, so here's another good example of it, right? So here in Indonesia, they ride more motorcycles here than anywhere in the world. There are millions of motorcycles. I say here, I'm in Manila now, but in Indonesia when I live. Right. Um, I mean, holy cow, there's probably 100 motorcycles for every car. And it's like the wacky racers, right? And so and there's not a lot of room on the roads, especially when the traffic stops. But everybody goes down the left side usually um, with the motorbikes, right? So there's not a lot of room to maneuver around the in the the mirrors and the cars and stuff like that, you know, and the roads are not that good. Um, actually, I, I, I ride a chopper over there, literally. Um, it's a big really? chopper. Wow. Right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Because you, so, you don't stand out enough as it is, right? Well, the other bikes <laughs> are too small for me. Their bikes are little motorbikes. It's like, you know, I, I squash those things, man. <laughs> so, uh, but I got I got it's pretty cool, man. So it looks like, uh, it looks like, what was that movie? Uh, Easy Rider. It looks like his chopper, right? And, uh, yeah. And anyways, but what I've learned is, and I know a lot of guys that ride motorcycles probably know that, and driving car, same principle applies. Wherever you want your motorcycle to go, look at the road in front of you, about 10 to 15 feet in front of you, and pick a spot on the road, and just watch it as you're driving, and you'll, you'll drift right to it. And the same thing with a car. Wherever your eyes go, your cars will go, okay, as long as you focus on that. It's, remember I said it's like the gun in your hand? Yeah. Your yeah. eyes and your, and your body work together, and it's, it's the most uncanny thing. I can whip through all these cars, not hit a mirror, but as long as I'm looking at the road in front of me, the bike goes where I want it to go. The eyes and the mind and the body are working together in unison. I don't have, and I don't think about it. Like, oh, don't, you know, don't wreck, don't yeah, wreck. Yeah, yeah. Look where I want to go. Yeah. It. <laughs> as soon as I think about it, oh, don't wreck, don't wreck. It sure shall hit a mirror. You crash into something, you know? <laughs> and it's fucking, it's fucking great. And it's something, I mean, I've got exposed to visualization early on, but I don't think I was exposed very well. And I didn't really get the point of it. And listen to you, like that, how you're walking and Devin through each of those steps. I think that, I think that is a big game changer. I think that's a, a single point of failure for so many people. Um, I can absolutely see the value of it. You've been great with your time and I deeply appreciate it. And I know it's the middle of the fucking night, so I, I want to let you go, but I can't let you go without asking about what I think is the most impressive part of the book. If I read it right. And I want to, I was like, I got to ask you about this. Am I right in saying that you were raising two kids by yourself while you're going through the Q course and that you were getting yeah. up and like, so, okay. So talk about that in terms of how the fuck, first off, logistically, how the fuck were you doing that? And then secondly, how does that factor into like the visualization, the, the autogenetic programming, all that stuff? Like, how do you set yourself up for success when you're that fucking loaded with shit to do? Yeah, so um, you're right. I, so I had two little kids. Uh, my wife left me for another guy, a doctor, a major, a dentist in the army. Um, yeah, go figure. And so, um, you know, anyways, when I, when I, when it was all revealed, you know, I was pretty devastated, man. And I was going through the Q course, <clears throat> just started going through the Q course. And uh, now I was in Delta at the same time. So I was in right. Delta. Now I'm going to go through the Q course, right, for six months. 
And uh, when all this came about, you know, I just like, you know, I was, you know, like, don't leave, you know, the kids, you know, I, I want my kids, I love my kids, you know. And, and so the craziest thing was she left and she took my daughter and left me with my son who was four years old. Um, no, not even four years old, two years old. And uh, yeah, he's two years old. So I got a two-year-old boy. She took the girl um, and I'm like, now what do I do? And so I was literally getting up in the morning at 4.30 and I, I had, thank goodness, I had some really good friends around the corner. I'll never forget them, but uh, they were good friends of mine and they took care of my son. His wife took care of my son all day while I was gone in the Q course. And at night when I got off out of school, you know, it could be 7.30 at night. I'd come home, pick him up, take him home, you know, feed him, take him, give him a bath, do all the things you got to do, you know, and prepare for the Q course again. Next day. I was, that's what I started doing, right, um, to get me through the Q course. Um, so, you know, I had, you know, I had a choice. And it, it actually got worse later on in life because then what happened was <laughs> later, later, um, my wife did leave me and my other wife left me with my kids again. And I lived out in Red Springs. I had eight acres I was living on by myself. Um, literally eight acres of property. It was me and my two kids and I'm in the unit in Delta now. Right. So the good upside was I was an OTC. I was an operator training instructor for two years. So I didn't have to worry about deploying too That's much. Good. Yeah. Um, but I still had the same dilemma. Right. Now I got it. It takes me an hour to drive to Fort Bragg from Red Springs. So now I got to pick the kids up. I got to take them to school somewhere. I got to drop them off. Then I got to go to work. And then when I get off work, I got to go pick them up somewhere and then drive back to Red Springs another hour just to get back home. I had to do that every day. Um, but as I said in the beginning, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one to give any marriage counseling. I'm not, I was apparently not good at it. And, and honestly to my, you know, I will say my alibi is this. It's tough to be in the military and special forces, special operations, and be married when you're always done. You know, granted, it is what it is. But like any other man, I wanted my kids too. I wanted children. You know, yeah. I wanted that. Yeah. And so I had to make this balance. And I realized what's more important was my kids, more important than the women. Women come and go, you know, and it doesn't matter what you do, they still dump you, you know. In fact, Statistically, 80% of the divorces are caused by women. 90% of them are college graduates. There's no incentive, you know, for guys to even get married in the United States because you're going to lose your ass the end and your kids and pay for right. it all. So I was, you know, trying to hang on to my kids because they really do mean a lot to me. Um, they mean everything to me, in fact. And so, um, yeah. But the other thing I talk about also when I, when I coach and mentor people is about um, task management, um, time management, you know, and first of all, there's no such thing as multitasking, right? There's only task switching. You got to be able to switch yeah. tasks and yeah. focus on different things rapidly. Right. And so, um, and so there was another time in my life where now I'm actually married happily and I got three kids and I was a green beret. I was a team sergeant. Um, I was a full-time student going to school eight hours a night or eight hours a week at night get my master's degree. I was studying martial arts, earned my, I earned a couple black belts, six degree black belts, first degree black belt. Um, I was boxing professionally. I was training bodyguards out of Mexico coming to North Carolina. This is all in one week now. I'm doing this every week, right? And I'm raising three kids and a wife. And uh, it's like, damn, what do you, you know, what do you find time to do homework or anything else? And so, well, the martial arts training was a family affair, right? We all go together for that, right? We all got in that, no big deal. But then uh, 
And I was like, okay, you know, but, uh, you know, I got all this other stuff going on, bodyguards, you know, and school and that and blah, 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 blah. So what I decided to do is so that I don't take any time away from my family um, doing homework, for example, is I wouldn't do a lot of homework around them, right? So I spent my evenings when we were free, you know, with my kids, my wife, you know, we all go to bed. I go to bed with my wife. I go take care of my wife, you know, and do what I'm supposed to do. And then when she was sound asleep and hopefully satisfied, <laughs> I'd get back out, put my clothes back on, go back out in the kitchen, turn on the kitchen light, my books, and start burning midnight oil for, you know, to two, three o'clock in the morning, get back up at 5 30, six o'clock go in uh, to, you know, work, be a Green Beret team sergeant, you know, do what I got to do as a special forces A team all day and then just do it over and over and over, you know. And so I did that for, you know, for a long time, you know, and for at least that particular uh, series for probably at least a year. Oh, I was boxing professionally too. I forgot to mention that part. I was actually boxing on, on a professional circuit. So, you know, so what, what, what does that all mean, right? People are like, well, how do you get any sleep? Well, you actually don't, you know, not as much as you would like, but sometimes if you want something bad enough, you'll have to make the sacrifice, you know, and the payoff comes later in life. So, you know, I was okay with burning midnight oil, doing all these things, you know, juggling a lot of stuff. I was, I was you know, task managing, you know, uh, task switching, time management, doing all these concepts together and having the discipline to do it, which, you know, is why I'm where I'm at today. Um, you know, I got all the things, the degrees, the, you know, you know, everything I've achieved, you know, I've got, you know, black belts, I've got martial arts videos, I make money off all kinds of different things because I was willing to make the sacrifice and put in the work up front, but not sacrifice my family in the process. Right. So that's a that's a hell of a job to do and be a dream sergeant, be a Green Beret, you know. And how so, are you feeding your you're talking about the the um, the visualization and all that stuff. How were you feeding your imagination during that time? Because it doesn't seem like you'd had time to even breathe during all that. Because a lot of those are, are forced are things that are forced upon you that you don't have control over. You know, op tempo, deployment cycles, things like that. So, how do you? Where do you get fed from? Where Where were you regenerating your own enthusiasm, your own imagination from? My imagination. Every day, I imagine the outcome. Right. So, but. For example, he's right. I didn't control the op tempo and everything else all the time. So, but I had to adapt. So again, for example, um, when I went to the field, a lot of times I carried my school books in my in my rucksack. And if we had some downtime, out came the books, and I started writing and highlight or reading and highlight. Um, at work, you know, when we had when it's time for break for lunch, you know, my team wanted to go do whatever. It's like, hey, you guys go right on ahead. I'm gonna sit here back in my office, pull out my sandwich and my books, and go to work. Okay. Sometimes I had to make those sacrifices. I earned my doctorate degree in 17 months, all of it in Afghanistan. Okay. Because when mm -hmm. I, I was not shooting bad guys in the face or lifting weights in the sure. gym, sure. I was in my hoops studying. Right. And so sure. I brought my, my books with me, you know, and that's what I did. So you've got to be able to task manage. You've got to be able to, you've got to see the outcome. That's so this is the imagination part, right? The vision, where you want to, what do you see yourself? You'll never get there on willpower. You've got to get there on imagination and you've got to have commitment and you got to have a plan and you got to be flexible, but you got to have what I always tell my guys right off the beginning is what is your purpose? Think of your purpose as your compass azimuth, your heading. All right. If you don't have purpose, you have nothing. You're just going to wander through life aimlessly. You're thinking you're going to discover something. And one day you're seven years old. Goes, Shit, I didn't discover anything and I wasted my whole life. 
Yeah. Better get on it now. Set that dial, lock in that azimuth, and get on it, right? It doesn't mean you can't deviate later on, but you got to have purpose in life. And once you have purpose um, and you see the outcome, the legacy, then you, now you have drive. You have reason to, to keep uh, to keep pushing forward. And and what gives me purpose? A couple things give me purpose. One, my father always gave me purpose, right? My father was my greatest inspiration. He was my hero. And I never wanted to disappoint my dad. I want my dad to be proud because nobody on either side of my family ever had a college degree. My dad had an 11th grade education. My mom had a 9th grade education. And, uh, you know, my dad just wanted me to be that one, right, to be the college degree. So I, I, everything I did was make my dad proud, not because I had daddy issues, but I, because I love my soft father so much. Yeah, he was yeah. like, I was just wanting to keep handing him gifts for being a good dad, you know? Yeah. And then when he finally died, you know, in 2012, unfortunately, um, I remember um, standing there going, damn, now what? You know, dad's gone. And then I realized, well, you got a bunch of kids, man. You got to be their purpose, right? Yeah. And so you got, and your purpose is to inspire uh, motivate them and set a bar for them that's higher than yours and make them get over it, right? That's yeah. how it's going to, the comp stock lineage is going to keep getting better and you got to keep raising bars for the next generation. So that has been my motivation, my inspiration, my kids. Um, you know, some of them are adults. My son's a Green Beret. He's a Ranger. My oldest daughter, she's also a performance coach. She's 38. Um, I've got a range of kids. You'd be surprised. Um, so uh, they just keep on coming and coming and coming. Little birds. Uh, <laughs> how do I make them stop? <laughs> Dale, Dale, did, did your dad ever talk with you about your career and your life? Did he tell you, hey, man, I'm really fucking proud of you. You've really done a lot of stuff. Yeah, you know, um, you know what really got me going? So my dad was in the Army for 20 years. Um, when we left, he left the Army. Um, I was 15. We moved to San Francisco, man. Are you kidding me? San Francisco, because of a job. He needed a job, right? And what a culture shock it was for me. And I just could not assimilate very well. Kids were different. It was not like the military culture. It's a huge difference, man. Huge sure, difference. Sure. And uh, and so all I could think about is I got to get back. I got to get back to that life, right? I want to join the Army, just like my dad, and just get away from all that shit. And I wasn't a good student anyways. And my, my dad really wanted me to go to college. And I remember when I told my dad one day I wanted to join the Army, He's like, ah, you won't make a good soldier, son. He goes, you're lazy. You like to sleep in late. You know, I do good, you know. And I was kind of like disappointed. He said that to me. I'm like, really? <laughs> and, uh, and so now I wanted to prove him wrong, you know. And uh, he was probably right, but I wanted to have to prove him wrong, right? And and I also knew that what he wanted was he wanted me to go to college, right? He was going to pay yeah. for and all that. Yeah. And I just, I was a poor student anyway. I didn't want to put him through that. I wouldn't waste his money. And I really wanted to be a soldier. So, um so, you know, that was really what got me inspired to keep sure. to go in and then to do the best I could, to, you know, to keep this promise, unspoken promise to him, um, to you know, to show my dad that I really am, you know, a good soldier. I can't get up at five o'clock, you know, I can do all those things, you know, and uh, and no, my dad was proud of me. I know he was. And, uh, you know, but um, it, the thing was, you know. As a father, he never gave me too much praise, right? It's like dangling the carrot out front, you know. It just kept me going a little bit, you know. He didn't want to give me too much and then have me get soft and go, okay, I, you know, I arrived with the rest of my laurels. You yeah, know? yeah. He's like, eh, that was pretty good, son. You could have done better. Like, fuck, you know, let me get back and try it again, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah. There is a difference, you know. Uh, hey, listen. But he was my motivation. Um I, I, I feel like after all the time you've had to sacrifice running around, task shifting and all that stuff 
the last thing I want to do is add more of it to your plate. So I'm going to let you go get some sleep, man. This has been a fucking blast though. And I really, I could have gone for another hour, hour and a half. This is just fucking interesting as hell. And um, the book obviously is beyond fascinating, but I've loved talking with you, bro. Um, Let everybody know where they can reach out and find you, hit you up, contact you, learn more about you, all that stuff, all your links and all that. Yeah. Uh, so DaleComstock.com, real simple. You can message me through there. Instagram, official American badass, Dale Comstock. Um, and then uh, Tier 1 Performance Coaching. Um, I'm partners on there with tier, uh, Joe Teddy from Dual Survival and my daughter, Danielle. Um, we, we run a coaching company there as well. So there's three, three avenues there. Easiest place is probably Instagram or just go to my website. You can reach me through that. Listen, um, I'd l- come back. Come back. I'd love to talk more in the future. Anytime. This yeah, is great, man. man. <laughs> Look forward to it. That was Dale Comstock's profile in Havoc. Go and check the show notes out um, for everything related to Dale. Uh, his website, his book, everything else. Um, I think, uh, as you guys could hear for yourselves, he's a beyond interesting dude. It would be a shame to not capitalize on his experience by um, hearing more of what he has to say, whether that's individual or whether that's buying his book and reading more of his words. Um, you know, I, I think it's worth – that is a brain worth picking. Let me put it like that. Um, and I enjoyed the hell out of talking to him, and I, I really look forward to having him back on the show. Okay, we started out this episode by thanking – one of our episode sponsors, Second Mission Foundation. I'd now like to thank our other sponsor, which is Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater is a nonprofit 501c3 tax-exempt organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events in order to enhance, enliven, and invigorate American theater and the live performance arts. If you're asking yourself, why the hell would anybody think that is a necessary tool? Let me remind you, everything in life is downstream of culture. And you want to have a sound culture. Well, at Veterans Repertory Theater, and full disclosure, this is my nonprofit, we firmly believe that the veteran community is the community worth placing your bet on. If you want to have a high percentage chance of a really healthy, robust culture, place it on the veteran community. It's not that all veterans think alike. It's not that they're all going to do great work. But the really talented veterans that we can find, select, assess, develop, and produce at Veterans Repertory Theater are, I think, ones worth taking a gamble on. That are ones that are going to positively impact the culture in ways that we can only imagine. But I think the second and third order effects of their impact will be Notable, positive, and fucking entertaining. And that's at the end of the day what we're about. We are an entertainment company. We are not here to help veterans. We are veterans that are here to help the culture, help your entertainment, help your Saturday night. That is the sandbag we have chosen to fill. And as I always tell people, the reason we do that really is because of what I believe makes a veteran special. And you may have a better definition of this than I do, but to me, what makes a veteran special is not that we're stronger, faster, better looking than anybody else necessarily. 
but it is that we have experienced a high volume of significant emotional events in a relatively compressed period of time relatively early in life. Those three things are, I think, what makes, that is the secret sauce of what makes a veteran special. What they did, how they experienced all that stuff. Well, and I think the the end result of that is to give the individual veteran a gut-level understanding of the extremes of the human condition. Humanity at the extremes. A gut-level understanding of conflict. That's drama. That's something that should be exploited in theater and the live performance arts because I think it adds to the culture. I don't think you can have a unified American culture if America's veterans aren't actively participating in them. And veterans are the most underrepresented group, I think, bar none, in American theater and the live performance arts. So to get more veterans into the arts is, yes, we are not here to help veterans, but it is a big help to veterans. How could it not be to be surrounded by a community of people that love what you do, love hearing your words, love hearing you expressed is, I think, of course, a help to veterans. It's just not why we exist. It's let's call it a happy accident or a well-intended second order effect, a benevolent second order effect. But our purpose is to give audiences something different. Um, theater is something that very few people go to in this country because why should they? It has basically become a provincial art form for very select segments of the populace. Um, we can change that. It can be something that is accessible because if you haven't experienced great theater before, you should. It's fucking badass. It's the same momentum channeled in a slightly different way than you get at a great concert. If you saw Metallica live, you'd be like, fuck yeah, that's incredible. Theater can have the same effect. It's supposed to have the same effect. And it does have the same effect. It's just not for that many people because it tends to be done by the high school drama club. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm saying that in a very demeaning way um, and painting with too broad a brush. But I'm saying that because it has become a provincial art form. You know, it's done in very select cities for very select populations. And that's not what it's supposed to be. It's a beautiful, awesome American art form. Um, and it will help if veterans get into it more and more. And I think veterans will enjoy the community that it builds and the community that it brings. I think it's a great bridging exercise to sync up the military and civilian communities. And at the end of the day, I think people will be wildly entertained because everything we do at VetRep is not there to make you feel good about supporting veterans. It's there to entertain you and make you go, fuck, that was a badass show. I can't wait to come back and see another thing. So for everything that we do at VetRep, go and check out VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. You will see all of our lines of effort, and we have a lot from live Savage Wonderground immersive art events to straight plays that we do. Um, we currently have 13 in various stages of development um, in New York City, um, not to mention you know our own podcast and all this other stuff going on. So check it all out, vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org, and stay in touch with us by signing up while you're there on our literary blog, which doubles as our mailing list. And every day we send you another piece of veteran writing to your inbox, and then we put some shameless plugs at the bottom. That's a great way to stay in touch and hear about all the great things we are doing at VetRep. And I'm saying that in a very self-serving way, because... Yes, it is a sponsor, and it's also my organization. But I really do believe in it very much, and I think it syncs up well 
with a lot of lines of effort in the veteran community. And I think it's something a lot of veterans don't even know they need and might really be pleasantly surprised by finding the writing talent or the artistic talent that they may not have nurtured as much. I think they could be really, I think there's a lot of badass stuff still to come out of the veteran community. Okay. If you're still listening at this point, I don't know why, but I really appreciate it. Um, as you can probably tell, we put a long tail at the end of these episodes because if you're a glutton for punishment, we will continue to dish it out here. <laughs> but I do appreciate you guys listening. Um, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this episode together. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of Dale Comstock, thanks a million for coming out and listening. Look forward to seeing you on the next episode for another Profile in Havoc. Oh,